how I am. I can easily put all my eggs in one basket <laughs> and, uh, and just uh, dwell on a particular point from the passage. Um, but we've been going through 1 Thessalonians, and uh, two weeks ago when I was here, uh, when I was here, uh, last Sunday I spoke at Calvary Chapel Appleton in Wisconsin, but uh, we looked at the first half of the chapter, and now we're going to look at the second half of the chapter. And the second half of the chapter, if you're familiar with it, or even as you're thumbing to that place in your Bibles, you see that there's a lot of exhortations. And many times at the end of the Apostle Paul's epistles, he will give just these practical things, exhortations that are important for the body of Christ. And they're just practical things. They're just things that should be a part of our daily lives. They should be something that is a part of every church. So before we get there or go through it, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer, and then we'll dig into God's Word. Lord, we are grateful for your word, grateful, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done for us, and Lord, just continue to do. And thank you, Lord, for the living relationship that we have with you through your Holy Spirit. And we pray, God, that you'd bless now the study of your word. Lord, even just simply remind us of these truths that most of them don't even need much explanation, but that they just simply need to be done in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be doers of your word and not hearers only. And we pray these things in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, the first couple of verses, we're beginning in verse 12, but the first couple of verses, I'm always, it's kind of funny for me because, and I'll just read it and then I'll mention my observation of the thing that's kind of odd or funny for me. But the Apostle Paul writes in verse 12, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Old King James, it says, to know them that labor among you. In the NIV, it says, now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who are working hard among you. In the newer translation, almost sounds like anybody that's a hard worker, know them. But it's clear from these two verses that he's actually talking about those that are in ministry. Again, in the NIV, it says, Who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you? Hold them in highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And this is what's funny for me to read and to teach on this, is me basically saying, I want you to think about how much you should be loving me. It's just kind of funny. We do? Who said that? You're getting an extra star on my refrigerator. Um, it's just strange to me and kind of embarrassing and, and all these other things. But the thing I find interesting about this particular exhortation is, again, to Paul's talking about the importance of recognizing the leadership in the church. And again, it's not just about me, but it's about those that God has put in our fellowship, and I'll make the application, in our fellowship that labor in the Lord. And I've been blessed over the years that God has surrounded me with godly men and godly women that serve the Lord. And they serve the Lord faithfully. And many times you don't see the things that they're doing because what they do, they do not to be seen because that's what the scripture says to do. You know, Jesus says if you you know, if you're, you give so that people see you, then you know what? You're going to have your reward. If you pray in such a way that people see you, again, you have your reward. 
But if you're giving so that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing, or if you're going into your prayer closet and you're praying, or you're doing things to not be seen, because again, you're doing it out of a pure heart as unto God, and you recognize too that the rewards that God has for those that are faithful in serving Him are much better eternally than any reward that you might get in this life because of the praise or the adoration of men. You know, when somebody says, oh, I just so appreciate you, or I so appreciate what you did for me. Well, again, too, you know, and the scripture says this in the book of Proverbs, let another praise you and not you yourself. Sometimes there are those in ministry that are quick to let you know all the things that they do. And again, too, if they do it for the purpose of, of receiving that type of admiration or, or, or thanksgiving or whatever it is you want to call it, that's all they're getting. They're not getting anything eternally. And the thing that Paul is talking about here, and this is something, again, in a small church, even in a small church, it's, it would be somewhat difficult for me as a pastor to know everyone in our fellowship. I mean, at times I even struggle to remember names, and I'm getting to that point in my life where the age and the memory and all these things are, are somewhat of a struggle. And, and yet, one of the things I've done for years, even when I was a young man and I had a great memory, and I used to have a great memory, used to. But even then, as a Christian, I always love being able to call people that are brothers and sisters in Christ, brother. And it makes it really easy as far as remembering names. Hey, brother. Good to see you, sister. And you can wonder, does he really know my name? Or is he just using that brother-sister thing as a way to say hi to me without remembering my name? And I bring this up, again, to a simple point. Regardless of the size of the church, and we're a small church, but even then, this size, we have two services, and I, and I try, I make an effort to know people's names, but even then, like I said, there's difficulty. But if, our, if the Lord were to bless and continue to add to our church, you know, it would be very difficult for me to know every one of you. But this is the thing that the Bible's saying, what God's Word is saying, is for you to know me or to know those that are in ministry or in leadership. Know them which labor among you. And when I say that, you know, the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Corinthians, he basically holds himself out as an example of walking with the Lord. And he encourages them to be followers of him as he is of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in a sense, he's willing to say, my life is something that hopefully as I'm following the Lord, you're following my example. You get to know me. And again, this is my point. is very simple. It's impossible for me to know everybody, know everybody well. But I think over the course of time, as I'm up here in the pulpit teaching God's Word, or even not just me, but those that are in leadership, Eric Wetter, Jack Culbertson, others that serve, again, too, that may not necessarily have a title in ministry, you know, and, and not just the guys, the, the ladies as well. And I don't remember who mentioned this to me. I think it was yesterday as we were kind of setting up for men's Bible study. We have it two, two Saturdays out of the month, and yesterday we had it. And, and as we were setting up, somebody, one of the guys asked me, so is Eric going to be here this morning? Because he's usually there for men's Bible study. And I said, no, they're up north in Bemidji visiting Irvin Theta. 
And, and the comment that came out of the person's mouth, my, I can't remember what my brother's name was. You probably, if you were here, you know who you are. But it's like the wetters do a lot for our fellowship. They're a family that are faithful. I see the same thing in the Culbertsons. As a family, it's not just Jack and it's not just Eric, but their wives, their children. I mean, you see their kids serving in ministry. They're behind in the media running the sound booth and doing things like that. They're on the worship teams. I mean, they're here. They're here early. You know, while everybody is still, and it's nice that the time change, we get an extra, I don't know if, if you're still adjusting the time change. For me, I'm, I'm getting up early still. I'm getting up, I mean, my body's still adjusted to the pre, you know, to the daylight savings time that we were on. So throughout the week, I find myself getting up earlier, about an hour earlier, because I think my body's still adjusted to that. But on a Sunday morning, they get here early. On a Sunday morning, there are those that are here cleaning the church. Again, too, because they're doing it for the Lord. They're doing it so that this place is a, a nice place, comfortable place, a clean place, uh, again, to a presentable place that people feel welcome. And whether they're part of our fellowship or whether they're visiting our fellowship, we're trying to create an environment in which people feel welcome. And there are a lot of components to that, and there are those that are doing those things. And God's Word says that it's you, the body of Christ, that needs to know them that are doing the work. And he says, and again, too, that's practical. You know them. Hopefully over the years you get a sense or know who I am. I, I try to be, myself as a pastor, I try to be the same in the pulpit as I am at home. I think my wife would probably attest to that. I am the same nut at home as I am at times in the pulpit or even the things that I describe. But I will say that I'm passionate about God's Word. And I'm passionate about Jesus. I love the Lord Jesus. And I'm passionate. And I love the ministry that God's given me in tending sheep. I, I really, I, I love it. I, I didn't like it. I got to confess, when I first started in the ministry, I liked the teaching part of the Bible. I did not like the responsibility part of being a pastor. Because I've, I've found that, you know, it's such a difficult thing at times, and I've heard one pastor describe it this way. He says it's like herding cats. I mean, you know, it, it can be difficult. And, and back then, in the early days, the first five years or so in the ministry, you just kind of, you know, you, you, you try to be the pastor that God wants you to be, and you find that there's pushback or agendas or, or things coming into play or resistance. And then you kind of begin to learn, you know, the importance of just being who you are in the Lord. And the thing that he says there in verse 12 is not only those that are laboring, but those that are over you. And it acknowledges the fact that in a church there are those that are in leadership and that lead. I mean, it's funny because we live in a day and age where people don't want to talk about submission or being in, in charge, or even churches have changed the titles of those that are in ministry somehow to make it more palatable to people that somehow, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, the pastor or the senior pastor or a leader in the church. I'm just a, a, a life coach or, or a, a, I serve in a team ministry. It's just like, 
I don't see that in the scripture. I mean, just deal with it. Deal with having someone over you that loves and cares for you. Because that's what God does for us. That's what Jesus does for us. I mean, it's important to understand, you know, to be able to... to I, I think of the Roman centurion as a perfect example. And Jesus commends his faith. He has a servant that's sick. He sends word to Jesus, come and heal the servant. And the Jewish people that come to, to, to intercede and ask Jesus to come to Caesarea, I'm sorry, um, Capernaum, to heal the, the centurion's servant, basically is, they're, they're, they're saying he's worthy to do this. Come, come, you know, this guy's helped us build a synagogue. And before Jesus even gets there, then he sends some more servants and he just basically says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you would even come into my house. And he basically says, I understand how authority works. I don't need you to come into my house. All you need to say is your servant is healed. And he, he gives the example. The, the centurion says, I'm a man under authority. I know what it is to take orders. And I'm also a man who's over authority. I'm in charge of 100 men. So I understand how authority works. If you say go, if I tell my, one of my soldiers to go, he goes. If I tell him to come, he comes. So Lord, I'm trusting that if you say, let my servant be healed, he's going to be healed. You don't have to come into my house. And throughout God's word, you see these examples of those that understand the correct operation or the way authority is to be exercised. I'm just going to rattle off a few things real quickly of things for me that I've uh, that I look at as far as ministry because in those first two verses he says know those that labor among you that are over you and admonish you. Sometimes it's necessary as a pastor and it doesn't happen very often for me but sometimes I actually have to admonish people. I have to tell them this is an area in which you're falling short or this is something that you need to consider or pray about or, or sometimes it's this is an area of sin. I mean, sometimes as a pastor, nobody likes conflict. But I recognize that that's part of what God has called me to do as a pastor, as a leader. And again, some of these things that I'm talking about are not popular today. They're not popular in the churches. They're not popular among society but here's the thing, you as a Christian, I as a Christian, we're different. We should be different. Again, too, if you can't submit to somebody that has been put there, and, and the writer of Hebrews talks about this at the, in the closing chapter, in chapter 13, he says, submit to, the, to those who have the rule over you because they have to give an account for your soul. It is not, again, too, the, I mentioned when I first started, I didn't like the responsibility because for me, I didn't take lightly the responsibility of making decisions or leading God, God's people. It weighed heavy on my heart. You know, when I was single, it was easy. Any decision I made, I made for myself. I'm going to go into the Marine Corps. I'm going to pursue this job you know, field. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to buy a car. I'm going to do what, any decision I made, I made for myself, and the person that was impacted by my decisions was me. Then after I got married, all of a sudden, now any decision that I make or that we make doesn't imp impact just one life. It impacts two lives. And all of a sudden, for me as a, a young husband, I'm just like, wow, this is kind of a, a heavy responsibility to make decisions. 
And then after being married for, I think we would at the time been married about seven years, then to come back to Minnesota and start the Bible study, and it starts with a handful of people. We've got four or five people coming. And all of a sudden, I began to feel this responsibility because now decisions that I'm making as a pastor are impacting five or six lives. And I remember at one point, the Bible study, I can't remember what day of the week it was meeting. And I can't remember the, the exact circumstances because it was so long ago. It was 28 years ago. But one of the families that were coming, they were faithful, and he worked for the post office. But as more people were starting to come, I could see that the day that we were meeting wasn't working for the people that God was bringing. So I was faced with the decision of we should change the day in which we have Bible study. And I remember just agonizing in prayer over that one decision. And when I made that decision, then this one particular family came to me. And like I said, I loved them dearly. But they said, he said to me, well, if you change the Bible study to that day, I can't come because I work. And I had to heavy-heartedly heavy say to him, I know. I mean, you make decisions that sometimes grieve you, but it was what was necessary for the entire body as opposed to putting the needs of one person first. So over the years, I've learned what it is to deal with that responsibility. And again, in ministry, and whether, again, too, maybe the Lord is, is encouraging some, even in our midst, to be in ministry or even to be in leadership or even maybe to plant a church or, or to come alongside someone that, that is doing a work in church planting or evangelism. But the, the things that he mentions is to know them that labor among you, that are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and that's part of it. I'm just going to rattle off a few things real quickly that are important as far as things that I've learned as far as leadership. First of all, it's impossible to please everyone. I want you to remember that because, again, sometimes people will come to me and, and whatever their need seems to be so pressing and so important to them, and, and Pastor, you, if you do this or if you do that, and the thing I found is, and the thing that you need to remember is that's your need. And again, it's an important need. But you have to think about the impact on the body. Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ. And for me as a pastor, I've learned that I just can't please everyone. And ultimately, for me as a pastor, I have learned that the weight and the burden of pleasing everyone doesn't rest on my shoulders. It rests on the shoulders of Jesus. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And again, too, this is something that I learned going to pastor's conferences. This is something that I've learned in practical experience. One thing I will tell you, not possible to please everybody. The first few years of ministry, after about three, four years of ministry, I started having chest pains. Now, if you ask my wife about my personality, my temperament, or even two, you know, now I'm, I'm 56, right? I got a little bit of gray hair. Just a little. I like to think it's a little. If I had to put a percentage on it, 25%. Some might think it's higher. Yeah, there's a collective groan there. I don't care. What hey, Book of Proverbs says it's a crown of glory if it be found in righteousness. But anyway, um, now I forgot what I was going to say. 
Oh, my wife will say, my wife will tell you that I'm the most laid-back person that she knows. That's why I don't have much gray hair. Even when I go to my, whose family, she cuts my hair every few weeks. I go in to get my hair cut. She'll say, how come everybody in your family colors their hair? Sorry, I shouldn't have said that on tape. Now, she's not talking about my wife. She's talking about my siblings. I'm digging the hole even deeper. <laughs> they never watch me on the stream or the archives. This will be the one time that they do. She goes, how come you don't have any gray hair or very little gray hair? It's because I'm, little will tell you it's because I'm laid back. But like I said, I, I had these chest pains. And at first I thought, is this stress related? And I, in my mind I'm thinking, there's no way that this is stress. Because I think I'm pretty laid back. Even in ministry, I'm pretty laid back. Probably for some people in our fellowship, I'm, that's why you're here. You get to be the ones that are stressed at times because Pastor Mike's the one that's laid back. But I, we had a couple of doctors in our church at that time and they were encouraging me because they knew of these chest pains that I had. And, and this is what it felt like. It felt like somebody was wearing a size 10 combat boot and I was laying on the ground and somebody was putting the heel of that boot in my chest and pressing down hard. I mean, I, at times in the middle of the night, I would wake up with that pain. And so I finally decided I'm going to go to the doctor because, yeah, I'm laid back. This has got to be heart problems. I'm, I'm dying. I'm 29 years old, 30 years old, whatever. I've got to be dying. So I go to the doctor, and they run a battery of tests. They do the EKG, the treadmill, the whole night. You've got a healthy heart. Oh, really? Then I went to another doctor who was a specialist in hearts. And again, too, this is because this couple in our church are doctors that said, Pastor, you've got to go to the doctor. Go to my brother. He's a, he's a specialist in heart. And he didn't charge me, which was even great. And he, he even did a few experiments on me, too, as well. No, because for people that have heart problems, sometimes they give you nitroglycerin. So he says, well, try this. You know, didn't do anything. So then, in the end, I went to a third doctor, and then the doctor began to ask me questions, which is great. He says to me, so you've already seen other doctors. They can't find anything wrong with you. He says, I think it's stress. It's not stress, doctor. I'm the most laid-back person there. No, it's stress. I said, well, he says to me, let me ask you a real simple question. When you get those chest pains, is there anything that you can do to alleviate the chest pains? So I started to think about it. I said, well... Yeah, there is something. He says, well, what is it? I said, well, usually I start reading the Bible or I start praying. He says, it's stress. He says, if there's something you can do to stop the pain in your chest, then it's stress. And he's like, it must be stress. And the thing I began to do and how this relates to my first point about it's impossible to please everyone, I found that because of that stress of trying to please, in particular, one or two families that were in the church, I had those chest pains. And God, I don't want to say this. I don't want you to take this wrong, but you know me. And, and again, too, I love you guys. But the Lord took this family from our church. They got frustrated with me and they left. And after that, the, 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 I didn't have any chest pains anymore. <laughs> and the thing I learned and the thing that God was telling me was you need to address this problem. And I didn't. And because I didn't, then I had the stress, and because I had the stress, I had the chest pains. And from that point on, I've learned to address problems. Because I don't want to be under... It's easier to please God than it is to please others. 
But again, I found that it's impossible to please everyone. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Serving Jesus, the yoke that we're yoked with, and again, think of this because Jesus is a carpenter for the early years of his life began, before he began his public ministry. His father was a carpenter. He worked with wood. He knew what it was to fashion a yoke for oxen or for donkeys or whatever. But he said, you know, yes, there is a burden that we bear, but when we're yoked together with Jesus, who do you think is doing all the heavy lifting? Who do you think's shouldering that burden? Jesus says his, his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. If it isn't easy and if it is heavy, if the burden's heavy, then I find that that's either something I'm carrying or something that God's never intended me to carry. So I, again, to when I say it's impossible to please everyone, I don't even try anymore. And I don't say that in a flippant way. I say it in a way, in order for me to be able to serve Jesus, I can't be the one that's carrying all the weight. It's his church. He died to redeem you and to redeem me. And ultimately, any issue, you know, I encourage you too, any issue, you need to go to Jesus first with those issues and see how he wants to work in your life through it. Because the church or me as a pastor, I'm not the end all of everything that goes on spiritually in your lives. Hopefully, I'm just, again, too, taking you to green pastures, you know, allowing you, I'm opening up God's word. I'm, you know, working and allowing those to have their gifts to work together to edify the body itself in love. But I have a purpose as a pastor, or the leaders have a purpose, but it is impossible to please everyone. The second thing that I've found, again, too, with ministry and with regards to leadership is to stick to the Word of God. Stick to God's model for the church. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and now that I'm doing this, there's no way I'm going to get through the end of the chapter. See, I wanna, and one of these is going to be follow the leading of the Spirit. But so here's the thing. Stick to God's Word the model for the church. Look at the Christian landscape that's out there today and look at what they're trying to do to attract people into church and to keep people into church. And the thing is, God's Word doesn't do that when it talks about His church or the way of doing things or even the way that we should walk as Christians. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that there is no foundation that any man can build upon other than the foundation that's first laid in Christ Jesus. It's foolish to try to build either your walk or to build an institution or to build the church on anything other than Jesus first or the things that his word says. So he says anybody that hears what I'm saying and does what I'm saying 
is a wise man that builds his house upon a rock. Verse 25, the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. See, that's the value of building right on a strong, a firm foundation. Is that when the trials come, and the trials will come. For us personally, for us as a church body, the trials come in our church. Sometimes they're the attacks of the enemy. Sometimes they're sheep fighting with each other within the body of Christ. Sometimes it's gossip. Sometimes it's other things. And again, to the scripture warns against all these things. There's no church that's immune from these things. But the bottom line is, is if it's built and the trials come, if it's built upon the rock of Jesus Christ, if it's built upon the foundation of His you know, word and of the things that His word teaches, then it's going to be solid. Yes, the, the trials are going to come. The storms are going to beat against it. But the bottom line is, is it's going to weather those things. It's going to stand because it's built upon a rock. In verse 26 of Matthew chapter 7, he says, And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. It's foolish to think that you could somehow improve on God's plan or upon His word or upon, again, the commands, the teachings of His Word. And yet that's taking place in Christians' lives today. That's taking place in churches today that don't want people, you know, we don't want them to feel uncomfortable. We don't, don't want them to feel convicted. We don't want to talk about unpleasant things. You know what? Read the Bible. Follow the Bible. Be blessed. Because the person that doesn't, or doesn't follow that model of God's Word, they end up shipwrecked. They end up destroyed. They end up, you know, a wreck in the end when the trials come. Sometimes it's a matter of time. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it's over the course of a longer period of time. Third thing I'll share with you is the importance of praying about everything. Again, to as a pastor and the leadership, I think... So many times, and Pastor Chuck at the Calvary Chapel Pastors Conferences used to warn against getting to a place where, again, to as a pastor, you know, you kind of know how to do ministry. You know how to prepare a Bible study. You know how to pray for people. You're, you know, you, you become comfortable with it. Again, in the first few years of ministry, I was a wreck at times. I was just like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to say. And I'm up, you know, reading until the wee hours of the night, 2, 3 in the morning. And then on Sunday morning, I'd come to, to church, and I'm just too tired to teach. My brain was just locked because I was just exhausted. And I was nervous, and I was worried, and I was all these different things. And what will people think? And, and, and i got to find something. You know, again, too, one of the things, a young pastor, young teacher trap that they fall into is somehow finding something in the Bible that nobody else has taught before. Because, again, I want to make it interesting. I want to bring out some profound truth. Nobody's ever come up with a thing. Oh, wow, that was really deep, Pastor Mike. I find myself looking for something that's not there. The impact are the things that God's Word says over and over and over because we need to hear these things. And the thing that I've 
found then, and Pastor Chuck then would say, you know, you get to the point where all of a sudden you, you do. You, you experience some what he would call success in ministry. People start coming. The church starts to grow. You feel comfortable. You sleep at night. You don't worry. You're, you know, it's like on his shoulders. But then the problem is, is you start doing things out of, well, I've done this before. I know how to handle this before. Experience. You begin to rely upon experience. And that is a mistake as well in ministry. And the thing that I found is it's important to pray about everything. Even when I mentioned our Christmas Eve service and Christmas Day, whether or not we would have one, I thought about it. Yesterday even was challenged on it. And it got me thinking, well, yeah, I'm open I'm willing to pray, and it's important for those that are in ministry. And you get this sense with churches today, too. Many times churches are pastors. They've just learned a, a method. This is what works, and this is what we're going to do, and these are how we make decisions. And it just becomes this mechanical thing that lacks the leading of God's Spirit or even to the leading of God, and there is a lack of prayer. And it's important to pray about everything and to take nothing for granted. And I bring up the example of the Gibeonites found in Joshua chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. Well, you can if you want, but I'm not going to read the whole passage. In a nutshell, the children of Israel were warned not to make any agreement, any pact with the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. God was going to destroy them and drive them out, so you're not to make any allegiances with them because the concern that God had was that they would, the children of Israel would begin to worship the false gods that they were worshiping. You make an agreement with the pagans, you're going to be worshiping like they are, so don't make any agreements with them. And after the children of Israel defeat the city of Jericho, and after the, the children of Israel defeat the city of Ai, there was a little, little hiccup in that one, then the next city that they're coming up against or the next people group in the land of Canaan is the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites were shaken in their boots. They knew what God had done. They had heard how God had delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. They had heard how the children of Israel, two and a half million people wandered in the wilderness and God sustained them for 40 years. They knew that probably the strongest city in the land of Canaan as you cross the river Jordan was Jericho and the walls fell down. The Gibeonites were afraid. And they're thinking, they're going to slaughter us as well. Let's make a covenant with the children of Israel. But they were probably thinking, well, the children of Israel aren't going to trust us because we live here. So let's pretend like we come from a far away land. And they wore their old clothes. I've got clothes that I won't throw away. they got holes in them because I think, well, I'll use them when I cut the grass or do yard work or stuff like that. They put on their old clothes. They put on their old sandals. They, they, they got old moldy bread. They got old wineskins that were all beat up and tattered. And, and they come walking into the camp of the children of Israel. Hey, we've heard about what God's doing. We want to make an agreement with you guys. And the children of Israel, you know, the leaders respond, well, how do we know that you're not from the land here? Oh, look at us. We put these clothes on. They were new. I mean, look at our sandals. These were brand new. The bread, the day that we left, we come from a faraway land. The day that we left, this bread was fresh. And now look at how hard and moldy it is. And, and our wineskins, we had just filled them up with new wine. But, oh, we've traveled a long way. And, 
but we've heard about God and we want to make a covenant with you. And the interesting thing is, is it says in verse 14 of Joshua chapter 9 that the men took of their victuals or their food and it says, and ask not the counsel at the mouth of the Lord. See, they had experienced victory. The children of Israel had defeated Jericho, had defeated Ai. They were kind of in a sense, okay, we're walking in the Spirit now. God's doing this thing. We don't have to ask Him about this because just by appearance, we think these guys are legit and they end up making an agreement with them and it was an agreement that would impact them for the rest of their history. See, never, ever take anything for granted, but pray about everything. Pray about everything. Later on in the passage, it's going to tell us the same thing in verse 17, to pray without ceasing. For me, fourth thing, Again, to, this helps you to understand who I am as a pastor and who we are as a church and the leadership as well. But again, too, hopefully this is equipping those that are in ministry as well or that God may be raising up to go into ministry. But don't be pressured by anything and not go against the peace that God has because God will give a leader or a pastor a peace about something and God will take the peace away when that pastor, that leader, or even you as an individual are going against what God is wanting to do. And I take you to a couple of places. One of them is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And we looked at this when we were going through Colossians. But it says, To let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. I mean, it's an expression, you know, when you don't have that peace. You know, sometimes people would try to put pressure on me to do something, and the thing is I know that I don't have God's peace if I were to listen to them or do what they asked me to, and, or if after praying about something, I know, let the peace of God rule in my heart, I know that I have peace about this decision, but if I were to choose this or go this way, I know I wouldn't have a peace, and it's a check in my heart or in my spirit. In James chapter 3, verse 17, and this talks about the wisdom that comes from above, from God, and it's contrasting the, the, you know, the, what, the opposite from what comes from the pit of hell, basically. But in James chapter 3, verse 17, it says that the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. See, I found that it's important that I don't get pressured into doing something that would rob me of the peace that God wants me to have. And again, too, for you, for me as a Christian, not, let's take being in leadership off the, the table. I mean, God wants to do the same thing in your lives as well. Don't let other people pressure you into doing something that you don't have a peace about, especially if you've sought out what God's Word says, especially if you've prayed about it and you have listened to godly counsel. Then don't be pressured into doing something. Now, sometimes we do need to be exhorted. Or, you know, in, chapter, in verse 14, the very next verse of, of, of our passage, it says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Old King James says unruly. 
And I'll get to that next week, but it says, Comfort the feeble-minded. In the NIV, it says, Encourage those that are timid. Sometimes people that are timid need to be encouraged, pushed along at times. And that's not the same thing. If I'm encouraging someone or comforting someone, it's not the same thing as pressuring someone. And I think we know the difference. We discern the difference between the two. But for me as a pastor, if you think that you're going <laughs> to... I don't say this is a threat. It sounds like it. If you think you're going to pressure me into doing something... <laughs> when our daughter was young, and I, I don't want to embarrass her, but I'm going to, and she's not here anyway to defend herself. But when she was young, you know, kids do this. I mean, every kid does this. They will ask you something in front of everybody thinking that they're going to pressure you into doing this. Dad, I mean, and again, too, I'm talking about when she's just a little girl. I'm not talking about as a teenager or older because she learned right up. She learned very quickly the consequences of trying to pressure me as a parent. Dad, can Michaela sleep over? And I told her, I said, you know what? You want to ask me? Because you're asking in front of Michaela. And there's Michaela with her big, you know, eyes. She's like, yeah, can I sleep okay? So it's like, if I say no, then I'm the bad guy. And I don't want to be the bad guy. So I told I said, Sarah, you can ask me anything. But you can't ask me in front of other people because you're going to pressure me. And, and if you do that, then the answer is automatically no. Even if I would have said yes, if you're doing it in front of everybody else to pressure me, thinking you're going to get your way. The answer is going to be no. So Sarah learned early on not to, again, to try to make me, let Michaela sleep over, let me go wherever and do this. It's like, you learn to do that. I'm not going to be pressured. It's the same thing. You know the difference. A person knows the difference when they're, they're being pressured because it's one thing to communicate what a need is and then to just leave it and trust the Lord with it. I know that. I've, again, to even before I was in ministry as a pastor, even now that I am a pastor, there are times that I have to communicate things, and I could apply pressure on you as well. I could use whatever pastoral authority that God's Word gives me, or I could take God's Word and find Scripture passages and guilt you into doing something. But I found it's just important for me to communicate to you, you know, again, to what God's put on my heart, and let you make the decision without me pressuring you. Because sometimes we just push back because of the pressure. It might even be right. The decision or the thing that the person wants you to do might be the very thing that you need to do. But the problem is, is our nature will resist it when we're being pressured. And again, too, that's I found it just doesn't work to try to pressure others. And along the same lines then, with for me, the importance as far as leadership, is that I've learned not to pressure others and I've learned to just simply lead and let others follow. You know, I know the difference. I mean, and again, I'm not, I think there's some pastors that feel like they have to be in control and they have to, everything's got to go through them and, and they've got to know everything that's going on in your life. And, and again, too, if there's a problem, they want you to come to them. They don't want you talking to anybody else to get advice from mature brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, too, uh, you know, I've just found, and again, for me, it's impossible at times to know what God's doing in my own life, never mind trying to figure out what God's doing in your life. And again, too, for me, I found 
I'm going to go the direction that God's called me to go. And if you recognize, or if you recognize the leadership in our fellowship, that this is who we are, this is the things that we think are important about a church. And again, too, I've shared some of these things, but for me, you know, the basic things, the most important things about a church is it's a place where God's Word is being taught. It's a place where God is being worshipped. It's a place where people are serving together as a body. It's a place, again, too, where, you know, the things that are spiritual are encouraged. I mean, again, too, if you think, yeah, you know, that, I can get behind that. I can follow a pastor or a church or a leadership that does that. Then great, this is the place for you. And I recognize that. See, again, again, too, I don't make people, I don't, again, I can tell you stories of pastors I know. They make people call them pastor so-and-so. Pastor. You know, and they'll correct you. If you happen to call them Mike or Jim or Bob or Steve, it's just like, Pastor Mike, Pastor Jim. I mean, they want to emphasize that authority. I, in some ways, I mean, when I'm up here, yeah, you get to see who I am. And what I, but you know what? When I'm not up here, I, I'm not, I don't like telling people I'm a pastor. They treat you differently. They treat you weird. They treat you, I mean, they do. We were at a soccer game. Sarah was playing first soccer game in high school, sitting next to some of the other parents and the woman sitting next to us was just cursing up a blue streak. Just, and so then, you know, we, you know, which daughter's yours? Oh, ours is number nine there. Oh, which one's yours? And she points it out. And then, you know, so she asked me, she said, so what do you do? And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, well, what do you do? What do you do for work? You know, and I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church. And then all of a sudden she turned red. <laughs> and then she didn't swear anymore for the rest of the game. You know, again, too, I'd rather, I mean, be who you are. I was in the Marine Corps. I, I mean, in my BC days, I could compete with them. I'm not proud of it, but I could compete with the best of them. But the thing I found, again, too, with leadership is I'm just going to go the direction because there's a great, great rate, you know, weight of responsibility. And again, too, God's Word says that I'm not supposed to pressure or beat or any of those things the sheep first peter chapter 5 verse 1 peter writes the elders that are among you i exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of christ and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed feed the flock of god which is among you taking the oversight thereof not by constraint but willingly not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind neither as being lords over God's heritage but being an example to the flock and when the chief shepherd shall appear you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away James chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 my brethren be not many masters knowing that we will receive the greater condemnation for in many things we offend all and if a man offend not in word the same as a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. Zechariah chapter 11 verse 17 is a warning to shepherds. Woe to the idle shepherd that leave the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye and his arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. And it's a great responsibility to lead but that office or authority should never be abused. And the last Thing that I'll share and we'll close the message out is 
I've learned to guard against wolves. I think we live in a day and age where, again, too, where churches, it's like they all want everybody to come in and they all want to hold hands. And Even if you have a different point of view, you're, you're welcomed here and accepted and we all want to sing Kumbaya. And, and again, too, we don't want to say anything against anyone. And I've had people leave our fellowship, and I don't make it a point to point error out in other churches doctrinally. I make it a point to teach God's Word, and hopefully as you begin to think about what God's Word, or as you begin to read God's Word, you begin to see probably problems that are in churches or in doctrines that are out there. And there are some that, again, too, if it's just a difference, I, I recognize that. I got no problem with that. But if it's subversive, or if it's what Paul warns against when he, he talks about uh, the Corinthians and his worry that they might be deceived by false teachers and by wolves that would come in and subvert the work that God is doing in their lives. And he uses Satan as an example. I think this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. That Satan comes even as an angel of light and so do his ministers. And as a pastor, part of my responsibility is I have to guard the flock against wolves. As a shepherd, I have to warn. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, as Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, he knows that he is probably going to end up being arrested and have to ultimately give his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. But his last exhortation to the Ephesian elders is found in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and he says, Take heed therefore over yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. We've become so naive and so tolerant and so accepting of everything that a, a church that doesn't even think that there are wolves out there are going to be prey to the wolves that are wanting to just tear them apart and undermine their faith. And it's not a cruel thing that a pastor does in at times calling out the wolves or the false teaching of the wolves it is a thing that he does to protect the flock. I'm just going to leave it at that. Verse 13, it says, Esteem them very highly in love for the work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Hopefully this helps you understand me and the leadership of our fellowship, but this also helps you understand how this church should work according to God's word. So let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we thank you for the work that you've done in our fellowship over the 28 years that we have been a church. And Lord, even though we're a small fellowship, Lord, we love you. We love your word. We love the working of your Holy Spirit in our midst. And I love, Lord, the gifts that you have brought. I love the, the new people that have come to know the Lord or that are coming here and are plugging in as a part of the fellowship. And I love uh, the old saints that have been faithful and have served faithfully. 
and Lord are, are worthy of a, a great reward that you have for them laying up for them in heaven and Lord I pray that you'd continue to do the work that you're wanting to do in our midst and that your Holy Spirit would lead and I just ask you these things in your mighty name Amen <laughs>